Hello, and welcome to Sanofi's General Medicine Medical Podcast, Keeping in Sight, Bridging the Healthcare Community. In each episode, we speak with experts from the diabetes community to share their experiences and best practices for addressing health inequities. We hope that you gain awareness, perspective, and empowerment to make impactful changes for your community. My name is Amulia Tadachar. And my name is Erin Moline. And we are the Diabetes Medical Science Liaisons for Sanofi. This program is not promotional and is sponsored by Sanofi. Please be sure to click on the episode for links to references and resources to support your efforts in addressing health inequities. This program does not constitute an endorsement by Sanofi of any particular organization or its programming. Additional resources and information may be available and should be investigated. Today we are joined by Dr. David Kerr, the Director of Digital Health at the Diabetes Technology Society. Dr. Kerr is a UK-trained physician who worked in a hospital research institution starting in 2014 in Santa Barbara, California. Which worked to democratize digital health, Dr. Kerr will share more about democratization and discuss the importance of empowering people with diabetes through technology. In this episode, we will continue to build our conversation on trust and add this critical aspect of addressing health disparities, equitable access to technology. Dr. Kerr, welcome. We're excited to have you joining us today. We've had many conversations about social disparities and health inequities over the years. I would love for you to share how your passion for health equity led you to the important research you've conducted. Erin, thank you ever so much. And it's a real pleasure to be on this podcast today. This is a really important subject because if you look at a map of America and look at rates of diabetes, what strikes you or what struck me when I first did this was there are pockets where there's a lot more diabetes than in other areas. And it's not just due to the density of the population. It's due to an observation that diabetes affects communities disproportionately. And sadly to say, it affects communities often who are already facing health disparities. So if that's your starting point, then think about how difficult it must be, given the disparities influencing your day-to-day activity, but how can you achieve the goals of therapy? And so this is an area ripe for research and ripe for innovation. And I'm absolutely delighted that Sanofi are leading the charge in this area. One of the other things, we've just come through this pandemic and we're all kind of recovering from this. And the pandemic taught us a great many lessons. But one of the ones that we actually saw, and it was very stark here in California where I live, is that the pandemic disproportionately this word is going to keep cropping up, disproportionately impacted people who had an excess burden of diabetes, which led to really poor outcomes from a proportionality perspective for these populations. The blunt truth is that poor people, people who struggle because of health disparities, they ended up really bearing the brunt of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it doesn't have to be like this. Now, we in the diabetes professional area, we have an obligation to do something to reduce these health disparities when it comes to people with diabetes, not just people living with diabetes, but also people who are at risk of developing condition. We once, um, two years ago, I think it was, we published an article, we said that diabetes like COVID-19 is a wicked problem. 
And I still believe that's true. Wicked problems are problems which are vast, complicated, with multiple stakeholders with different agendas. And the fundamental challenge is that when you do something in that area, it has a ripple effect. And what we find with the COVID pandemic is that it had a ripple effect of producing worse outcomes for those who could least afford to be impacted by the disease. Thank you for your comments. I think you bring up some really important points there, especially how the disproportionality was more obvious during the COVID-19 pandemic. You published an article in June last year titled Dismantling Structural Racism in American Healthcare, Moving from What Is to What Ought to Be. You and your team created an innovative take on the community health worker called a community scientist or a specialista and program called Milfamilias to reduce disproportionate access to healthcare to the Hispanic Latino community. Can you share, please, more about their role and how you came about creating Milfamilias? So this was an observation. So I, you can tell from my accent, I'm not American. I'm from Scotland. I'm a white guy from Scotland parachuted in to the central coast of California. And I live in Santa Barbara, where everyone thinks it's full of A-list celebrities and expat British royals. But in fact, 50% of the population are from the Hispanic Latino community. And when you peel back the information or the onion of diabetes, what do you see? You see a rate of type 2 diabetes, which is almost double that of the background non-Hispanic white population. The disease which occurs at a younger age, associated with worse control and more complications. That's, a, that's an observation where we need to find out why does this happen? And then if you stand back and look again, and look at recent research trials, and we actually published information on this. Most of the studies, particularly in type 1 diabetes, but also in type 2 when it comes to technology and pharmaceutical interventions, who is not in line for these trials? It's the same people who have a disproportionate burden of diabetes. So what does that mean? There are too few people from the Hispanic Latino community, too few people from the Black American community, from the Native American community, and so on and so forth, in clinical trials. Now, there are a number of reasons for that, some of them ranging from historical abuse to fear of the consequences of being in a trial, but also because there are too few health professionals that come from these same communities. So what we did in Santa Barbara is we decided to create a new type of community health worker. We initially called them a community scientist or a specialista in Spanish. Now, these are people from the community. They may not have a very high level of education, but they fulfill certain criteria. One, their passion. Two, the care, and three, they're willing and able to learn. And by creating this specialist community, they form the link between healthcare, medical research, medical innovation, and the ability to access populations who are likely to benefit from participation. And we found that the most important currency when it comes to engagement and participation is trust. It's impossible to access good care if you don't start off with a relationship of trust between the stakeholders. And we find that by employing the specialists, creating this new type of community health worker, we were able to engage 
people able to participate, and people benefit from this participation. And I think this is going to be the future of healthcare in the United States if we really, truly want to access these hard-to-reach communities. This is such a wonderful program. We know the need for access and the need for building trust, um, especially in the underserved community. We would love to hear more about research outcomes that you and others have conducted that helps people with diabetes integrate technology into their daily lives. Thank you. That's a really important question because there's a misconception. There's a misconception that if you're poor, there's a misconception that if you have only got a very basic level of education, there's a misconception if you live in an area of high crime that you're not interested in technology. That is a fallacy. We have found that people are people and people with diabetes, and remember that diabetes in reality is a chronic, often incurable, long-term disease where the outcomes are not known and cannot be reasonably well predicted. To live with that over your head, people with diabetes, like in other conditions, want to know what is available to reduce the concern, the anxiety, the stress, and the uncertainty. And that's why if you offer people technology and you explain in language which they understand, which is relevant to them as an individual as well as a community, they really are very keen to try. And so we've done a couple of things and we've published some outcomes showing that it works. The first is that if you give people a continuous glucose monitor, and by people, I mean people not on insulin, people with pre-diabetes, people who are simply at risk of diabetes, they're willing to wear it. They're also willing to wear a fitness tracker. They're also willing to wear a sleep tracker. And what we found is that if you compare people at risk of type 2 diabetes with pre-diabetes, with established non-insulin treated type 2 diabetes, and you look at the CGM profiles, you can actually see differences which suggest a progression of dysglycemia moving across these three groups. For example, real-world information, look at breakfast glucose profiles on CGM in Hispanic Latino adults at risk pre-diabetes with type 2 diabetes, and you see what's called a northeast drift. You see a progression, a greater excursion of glucose as you move across these populations. We also find that if you look at the dawn phenomenon, it occurs more often and to a greater extent as you move again through these three groups. So th those are observations, but where will this lead? Well, I believe that this offers opportunities for much more personal lifestyle, as well as pharmaceutical interventions. Because if you're seeing dysglycemia, that offers an opportunity to do something about it, to prevent it. And that we're exploring this with other programs. We would like to look at what happens when you give these populations their own information. When you give them a continuous glucose monitor profile, you see that there's aha moments for a lot of people. They understand that what I did led to this. And so from a, I guess, counterfactual thinking way, they then decide, okay, I won't do that again because I don't want to have this big glucose excursion. Maybe I'll, I'll change my behavior and do something else. And when you take this further, if you then look at the combination of a fitness tracker or a sleep tracker with a CGM, what's called multimodal monitoring, you offer opportunities to nudge people with their food choices, with their activity choices, with their sleep choices. So I think this is going to be precision medicine for the future, where you have a combination of the biological measurements everyone's talking about, the so-called 
omics, where we factor in the social determinants of health, but we also look at real-time data from wearable devices. That's great and very snazzy and technical and everyone's excited about it. But we've also explored another concept, which is quite simple. The hypothesis is that if you provide better food, I'm not saying healthy food, just better food, good things happen. And so we've, again, done that within the Hispanic Latino population, at risk of diabetes, pre-diabetes, non-insulated type 2 diabetes, where we prescribe fresh vegetables. We don't provide education about what is a, an eggplant or how do you cook a cauliflower. Just provide seasonally available fresh produce straight from the farm and give them to people. And we did it. We created an observational cohort of around 300 participants and we followed them over three months. What did we find? Well, I guess you'd expect you'd find improvements in their biology. We did. We saw a nine, eight or nine millimeter fall in systolic blood pressure, a reduction in the waist circumference, slight loss of weight, all good stuff. We also saw that food security, which is a major driver of poor outcomes in type 2 diabetes, that also improved. But we also came across other benefits in the mental health, the psychological consequences of diabetes. People self-reported that if you give them better food, they sleep better, that their mood is better, that their perception of pain goes down. And then if you use validated questionnaires to measure things like depression, anxiety, and stress, they all get better. Now, if you had a pharmaceutical that did all those magical things, everyone would love you. But all we did was we provided access to better food. And I think high-end technological interventions are great, but for everyone, improving access to better food is therapeutic. This is such a wonderful point. Something as easy as food, good food, better food. It's something that we shouldn't take for granted. We can appreciate that people with diabetes tend to adhere to their regimen, labs, and appointments when they were enrolled in a research study, similar to what you were mentioning. Once the study is over, especially in those underserved community, it may be more challenging to adhere to those regimens and appointments. How do you encourage people with diabetes to continue these positive interventions? So this is really core. I mean, if you want people who have an excess burden of a disease to participate in research and innovation to reduce that burden, you have to do a simple thing. You have to make sure that they understand what is being asked of them. And one of the mistakes that we, including myself and many others in the healthcare professions, have made is that we haven't looked at understanding. We're very good at giving people information. We'll get very good at producing jargon, hard, complicated words, medical terms. And we, we do it every day in a consultation when we interact with the person. But we very rarely test whether that person has understood what we've what we're said and understood the implications of this. So that's why, as part of our programs, again, focusing on Hispanic Latinos, but this is applicable to other groups, is the need to what we call democratize knowledge, ensure that any content, written, text message, social media, print media, whatever, it should be written in such a way 
that the person, the target audience is able to understand this. And we've done this in a way by providing summaries of the latest research and information. We take an article, we summarize it, we translate it into lay language with the reading age as low as possible, because if you do that, more people can understand. We check it with readability engines and so on and so forth, and we translate it into English and Spanish, and we give it to people. And then we ask the especialistas to test that the person has understood what they've been given. It's a really simple idea, but it makes so much sense because otherwise we're hiding behind a language which is incomprehensible to people who could benefit. And I think we could do this with research information, with innovation, with clinical care, with pharmaceuticals, and make sure that people really understand what this drug does and what it could do that you don't want it to do in terms of side effects, but also why you should, should you be taking it? What are the benefits for the individual? And sometimes I'm sad to say we forget to do that. Dr. Kerr, I'm curious, what do people with diabetes tell you about technology? As I said earlier, they love this. I mean, there's this mistake. I can't emphasize this point enough. There is this misconception that if you're not doing well and you're struggling, or if you're low income and all that, that you've got no time, effort, energy, or enthusiasm for technology. That is totally wrong. The problem is, of course, that some of the technologies are unaffordable. And the onus is on us to work out better ways of achieving the health and economic goals for all the stakeholders, but most importantly, the person with diabetes. In order to make people aware of technology, we have to also ensure some of the basics are met. I've, with colleagues, published uh, some thoughts on connectivity to the internet. So if you think about it, I mean, we're on the internet today, we're doing a podcast. We're hoping a lot of people are going to listen in. But if you're not connected to the internet, you'll never hear this. And can you imagine if you have diabetes and you're not able to connect to the patient portal or you're not able to reliably and privately connect with your virtual care provider? You're not able to download information simply because you don't access the internet. So as a sort of take-home message from what we're trying to say is that connectivity is a vital sign. It's actually been called the super social determinant of health. So that's one thing, that's the basic. The other thing that's really important for us is to look at what is the interaction between the machine and the human. When you come from, a, when the human comes from a population where there may be challenge related, challenges related to health literacy, health numeracy, and technological literacy. For all the entrepreneurs, for pharma companies, medical device companies out there, my plea, given our experience, is to make sure that you engage with your target audience really early on in the development phase of any new technology that you're planning. Because you need to ensure that access equals understandability, as well as simply being able to get your hands on the technology. That's really good feedback. Thank you for sharing that. Also, I wanted to ask, how do you motivate a person with diabetes to be self-efficacious? And can you share practical points for primary care providers? So the most important thing philosophically, before I get to practical, is 
you want to ensure an improvement of self-efficacy is a consequence of change that does not lead to dependence on a system of healthcare. It's really vital that we maintain the independence of the individual and help them to take control of their diabetes, but not make excess demands on them. We're doing a study in collaboration with colleagues from academia and industry where we're looking at what we're calling the chaos of living with diabetes. If you if you don't have diabetes, it's really hard to get your head around the fact that every day you need to do certain things, particularly if you're taking insulin. You need to do multiple complicated calculations. But at the same time, you need to think about what you're eating, your physical activity. You're impacted by whether you had a good night's sleep. You also have to book your appointment, check your blood results, and so on and so forth. These are multiple tasks consuming time. And I think from a primary care provider perspective, think of when you think of diabetes, everyone thinks of glucose as the main currency. But there is another currency which is equally important as glucose, and that is time. And so we need to be mindful of what we ask people with diabetes to do. Technology is of interest to most people, the vast majority of people with diabetes that we've come across, whether they're rich or poor, black or white, young or old, they're of, it's of interest to them because there's a, a genuine perception that it has value. But what we all need to do, primary care, specialist care, is take time to ensure that there is understanding of what the potential demands of the technology are, but also the benefits of the technology for the person. If you want someone to use a diabetes technology, they have to have a perception that there is skin in the game for them as an individual. And that's the way to think about the consultation, the interactions between people with diabetes, providers, and technology. Those are definitely essential points. What do you think the future is for diabetes technology and particularly health equity? I think that technology is a driver of change on the road to achieving equity in diabetes care. Absolutely. The challenge for us is to make sure that it is accessible, affordable and understandable. But there's no doubt that it has or is creating opportunities. I mean, you hear about machine learning, artificial intelligence, chat GPT, and all of these things on the horizon. And there are people who are fearful of this. I, for one, am not. I think there's a place for human machine interactions in the management of diabetes going forward to the benefit of all of the stakeholders. I agree with you. That's definitely a hot topic. Dr. Kerr, what's on the horizon for you next? So I'm working with colleagues where we're trying in type 1 diabetes, in type 2 diabetes, in gestational diabetes, in all forms of diabetes, at risk of diabetes. And we're wondering and we're thinking about the application to reduce the burden of mental health as a challenge for people with diabetes. What do I mean by that? Well, that, as I mentioned earlier, there are drivers of poor outcomes in diabetes where we've really not applied it interventions such as food insecurity, loneliness, isolation, impulsivity. All of these things make diabetes much more difficult to live with, which will really make it a wicked condition or a wicked problem. 
So I think research and innovation in this area is essential. But in order to deliver this, we have to put more effort into understanding the health beliefs of different populations of people with diabetes. They are often different to our beliefs. And a mistake that we have made, which has led to this situation where of underrepresentation by certain groups in research and innovation, is that we've tried to impose our belief systems on them rather than understanding where they're coming from and adapting the care, the innovation, the technology to engage with them and generate trust. We couldn't agree more about the disconnect that sometimes there may be between health beliefs of a healthcare professional versus the person with diabetes. What are one to two takeaway points you want listeners to remember from this conversation? Well, there are actually many, but a simple one is diabetes causes chaos in someone's life. So the aims of the care provider, one of the aims is to reduce the burden of the condition. And that's not an easy task, but there's certain things that we can do. The second point is, as I mentioned, connectivity is a super social determinant of health. And if we're starting talking about CGMs and downloads and smart pens, all of this good stuff, make sure that the person you're talking to has connectivity, which is reliable and private to the internet. The future looks much more rosy, hopeful, than it ever has been when it comes to diabetes care as a consequence of technology. We should embrace that, but we should also remember that it's a human-to-human interaction which is fundamental to ensuring empathetic care and progress for everyone living with all forms of diabetes. Thank you, Dr. Kerr, for your time and sharing your expertise with our listeners. Be sure to click on the episode to get links to references and resources to support your efforts in tackling health disparities.